As we celebrated Reformation Day on October 31st, we're reminded of that great principle of sola scriptura, that the Word of God alone is our authority. And so what better cathedral of the Christian faith than could you find than this exalted letter? One of the loveliest edifices of truth in existence, according to D. Edmund Hebert, one of the loveliest edifices of truth in existence. And so as we come to God's Word today, it is our desire to not read into God's Word, to not jump off of God's Word into some kind of lecture that's based upon our own experiences or our own interests, but instead it is our desire to humbly sit at the feet of God and to listen to what His Word has for us to teach us. Now, as we look at the entire letter that Paul wrote here, the second longest of Paul's letters, but the one that has the clearest presentation of the gospel, we sometimes wonder exactly what it is that was Paul's motivation for why he wrote this letter to the Romans, what exactly was his purpose, and what was he trying to accomplish, what determined the content, and how that content came together, especially as we find ourselves in Romans 9 through 11, where we are currently in our study, walking through chapter by chapter. I think Romans 9 through 11 gives us some insight into why Paul wrote this letter the way that he did. But think about, why did he write such a, a lengthy treatment of the gospel, of justification by faith, apart from works of the law? Because that's really a good summary of the letter. Was Paul trying to safeguard the church in Rome from the influence of false teachers like had come to the churches of Galatia, known as Judaizers, those who were trying to make Gentile Christians act like Jews in order to be saved? Was he aware of issues that were taking place within the church at Rome for which he needed what they needed to receive this letter about the details of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or perhaps since the gospel was so central to Paul's missionary effort, he thought that writing out a lengthy letter detailing his gospel would be the best way to introduce himself to a church that he had never visited before but yet was hoping to see soon. Was Paul perhaps suspecting that his life could end in Jerusalem as there was some prophetic warnings about Paul's trip back to Jerusalem. And as he was on his way back, he wrote this letter to the church in Rome because he wanted his gospel to survive in written form after he himself had departed from this life. We don't know exactly what Paul's reasons were for writing the way that he did, but it's interesting to get some insight into that as you examine the content and the structure of this very, very central letter in the Bible. So Romans 9 through 11 gives us a defense of the gospel in light of Jewish unbelief. As we look at Paul's letter to the Romans, we see not only is this a presentation of the gospel, but it's also a defense of that gospel. And that is what the major thrust of Romans 9 through 11 is that if Paul's gospel of justification by faith and not by works of the law is in fact biblical, if it is in fact from God, then why have the Jewish people who love the scriptures so much not received that gospel? Paul is answering that objection to his message of Christ. Now, as we get a little bit further into Romans, we'll find out that there are some things missing from this letter that we find in some of his other letters, for example, he has no instruction to husbands and wives in this letter. No instruction to slaves and masters like we saw there in 1 Peter chapter 2 in our scripture reading. 
And he leaves out some of this, but instead in Romans 14 and 15, he gives instruction concerning dietary laws, holy days, which have to do with issues regarding Jew and Gentile together in the church. And so the emphasis of Jew and Gentile has been one that is there from the beginning of the letter and continues on with some major sections of the letter really focusing on the issue of, of Jew and Gentile it together with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, if you look there in Romans chapter 1, verse 2, you see that Paul says that he has been set apart for the gospel of God at the end of verse 1. And then he writes, this gospel of God was promised beforehand by God. He promised it beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures. Now, there's some pretty good redundancy built into that sentence. Because a promise is always beforehand. You don't have to say that I, I'm going to promise you beforehand because a promise is always something that you make beforehand. You don't promise something after it's happened, right? So he puts that redundancy into it. And then he also talks about the prophets. And the prophets, one of the major things that they did was they predicted what was going to happen in the future as evidence that they were speaking from God and were not merely humans making up a message. So the prophetic scriptures contain promises that were given beforehand. Here Paul, at the very beginning, when he starts to describe the gospel, is making the strongest connection he can with the Old Testament. He's saying, my gospel is in full accord with the Old Testament scriptures. And he goes on to demonstrate that throughout the letter. So he's not just presenting his gospel, but he's defending it. And one of his major courses of defense is to show it from the Old Testament he can prove that this message of salvation through faith is the fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. Now, Paul's reference here to the Holy Scriptures, it prepares us for the fact that Paul is going to quote from the Old Testament in this letter more than all of his other letters combined. You take all the quotations of the Old Testament in First and Second Corinthians and Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, you guys know them all, right? You take all those together, and Romans has more quotations from the Old Testament than the other 12 letters that we have from Paul. So that's, that's pretty impressive. That shows you some insight into why Paul wrote the way that he did. What was his motivation? You see it in how much he quotes from the Old Testament. And in fact, you come down to Romans chapter 1, verse 17. And you see here, I remind you that we looked at this verse in our introduction to the letter. And Romans 1, 16 and 17 is the statement for the purpose of the book. It's the theme statement of the book. And so here, at the second half of that theme statement, Paul writes, in it, that is, in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. So an emphasis on faith. Righteousness comes from faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Now, when I was teaching Romans 1.17, if you recall, I said that the best translation of Romans 1.17 connects by faith with righteous. The righteous by faith, those who are righteous by virtue of their faith, they shall live. And that provides the outline for the book, as Paul unloads his gospel in the following chapters, is that first he goes to show that we're not righteous by works, because our works are sinful, and that all humanity, Jew and Gentile, is, is under the condemnation of the law. 
And then he shows us that because we cannot be saved by our own works, therefore God has justified us by faith in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And he lays that out in Romans chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 5, and demonstrating it from the Old Testament scriptures. So we are righteous by faith. And then after he's demonstrated justification by faith, he goes on and talks about how we're supposed to live in that righteousness, in that standing that we have by faith. And that's what Romans 6, 7, and 8 are about, and chapter 5 also. 5, 6, 7, and 8 are about the life that we have now by this righteous standing through faith. So Paul's theme verse comes from Habakkuk chapter 2, verse 4. And it is a great passage, a great, great uh, book to study in order to gain insight into Paul's gospel. But in today, in the text we're going to be looking at together today, Paul has a number of other Old Testament quotations that he's going to bring in in order to demonstrate the truthfulness of his argument there in Romans chapter 9. And but as we uh, prepare to look into that, I just had one other verse here in our introduction, in Acts chapter 24, verse 14, where Paul is being recorded by the historian Luke, one of his companions, traveling, traveling fellows. And as he was giving a defense in the court, he said, This I confess to you, that according to the way, which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets. So there's this important question at the heart of the New Testament that is debated and doubted by many biblical scholars. Do the New Testament authors accurately interpret and apply the Old Testament scriptures in showing that they support the gospel that is preached in the New Testament? There's been a lot of ink that has been spilled to try to demonstrate that the New Testament authors have twisted and distorted, misused and misapplied the Old Testament scriptures, they've ripped them out of their context, in order to try to support this new thing, this new preaching of Christianity. Now, this of course is nothing new, that Paul was dealing with these accusations in his own time. And so that's the reason why he goes to such pains to, to demonstrate the truth of his gospel from the Old Testament. And as we look into the text today, we will see that the New Testament authors, Paul, here is our example, do accurately interpret and apply the Old Testament scriptures, the prophecies and the promises of God that were given, in applying them to the gospel of Jesus Christ. That is our goal in studying this text, because that is Paul's goal in writing the text, and God's goal in giving it to us. Turn with me then to Romans chapter 9. Now as we come to Romans 9 through 11 once again, We've had six or seven messages just here in chapter 9 because there's been some difficult doctrines that we've had to, to work through. But in Romans 9, Paul has been answering one basic question that he lays out at the beginning of the chapter. If Israel have been chosen by God as his elect nation, then why are most Jews not believing the gospel that these apostles of Jesus Christ are preaching? If this really is the fulfillment of the Old Testament hope of the Jews, you would expect the Jewish people to be really happy and excited about that. But instead, they're not happy and excited about it. In fact, they're persecuting those who are preaching this message. And so as Paul answers this question in Romans 9-11, through 11, 
He begins in chapter 9 by answering it from the divine perspective. That the elect nation is full of non-elect individuals. There's corporate election and then there's individual election. And Paul draws a distinction between the corporate election of Israel, they are chosen, they are beloved because of the promises that God made to their forefathers, but that doesn't mean that every individual within Israel, the nation, is personally chosen by God for salvation. And Paul demonstrates from Scripture how this has always been the case. This is not a new development in Israel's history. You go back and read the Old Testament and you find that most of the Jewish people did not believe, even though they were God's elect nation. So don't be surprised if that's the case that we find today. They are God's chosen nation, that's not to be denied, but also most of them don't believe in, in the same way that they didn't believe back then. And then in chapter 10, Paul is going to answer the question from the human side, the human perspective. And both of these are true. They're not believing because they were not elect, and they're not believing because they pursued righteousness by works. They're pursuing righteousness based upon works of the law, and that's why they're not saved. So looking at it from the divine side and the human side, these are both reasons. These are both why Israel, by and large, the Jewish people, were not saved in the time of Paul, and it carries on till today. Most of the Jewish people are not saved today. And we have the same questions, the same discussion. Is the New Testament really the fulfillment of the Old Testament? Then why don't Jewish people who love the Old Testament believe in Jesus? That question is still being posed. And here is our answer. Same question, same answer. The more things change, the more they stay the same. Right? So let's read our text today. Let me introduce it here for us on the screen. Um, come back to that one, maybe. So our text is Romans chapter 9, verses 24 through 33. You can follow along in your Bibles as I read it out loud. It's a continuation of a broken sentence before it, and we'll just break in there in verse 24. Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. As indeed he says in Hosea, Those who were not my people, I will call my people. And her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, You are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth, fully and without delay. And, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us a seed, an offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it? That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as if it were based on works, they have stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. All right, we've got our work cut out for us here. A lot to cover. We see in verse 24 what I have titled the effectual call. Look again at verse 24. As Paul has been talking about how God has prepared vessels of wrath for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercies, 
mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory, these vessels of mercy, prepared by God for glory, are us. Paul referring to himself as a Jewish believer, but the us also includes the Gentiles that he's been preaching the gospel to. Us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So the Jews and the Gentiles. That's our title for the message for this section. And we start off looking at the effectual call in verse 24. God has called us from the Jews and from the Gentiles. And here, when we're talking about the call of God in verse 24, we distinguish the general call of God from the effectual call of God. They might say, Timothy, well, where in the Bible does it say that there's a general call of God and an effectual call of God? Well, there's no verse that is going to say, well, there's a general call and an effectual call. These are titles that we give to describe the different uses of the word call that we see in the New Testament. So you interpret the word in its context, and we find in some contexts the word call is referring to a general call, that the call goes out to everyone to hear and believe the gospel. But in other verses we find out that those who are called come and are saved. And so that refers just to the specific individuals who respond to the call. And that response to the call is affected by God. God is the one who draws us to him. So the effectual call of God is that which is effected by God. And God, he says, Jesus Christ taught, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. This drawing of the Father is also known as irresistible grace. Irresistible grace is a part of TULIP, the five points of Calvinism. And there's a number of scriptures that do teach that the only way that someone can come to Christ is by the effectual call of God. Here you have the effectual call being pointed out. Now this verse doesn't say that the only way to come to Christ is by being called. But it does point out that those who come to Christ have been called. It's other verses that we look at, which are also about the same thing, like the one that I quoted from Jesus, that no one can come to Jesus unless he is drawn. That drawing is another word describing this call of God that is effective. If you want some more information on the effectual call, I'm not going to do a full sermon on that element of tulip because it's just a minor point in our text here today. But if you want more information on that, there's some great articles on gotquestions.org. That's usually the first resource I recommend. If you're looking for something concise, something very readable, go to gotquestions.org, type in effectual call or irresistible grace, and then you can look at each one of the verses that is given as support for that doctrine in its context, and do your own study. Come to your own conclusion. Let the word of God speak. That's what we're all about here. So, we're going to continue on from the effectual call in verse 24. I just wanted to mention it here because we didn't have time last week. But what we're really looking at is the scriptural evidence in verses 25 through 29, and it continues also in verses 30 through 33, of how the Old Testament confirms what Paul has been teaching concerning Israel and concerning the Gentiles, concerning Jewish and Gentile salvation by faith and not by works. That's going to be his theme, really from chapter 9, verse 25, down through at least halfway through chapter 10. This is going to be a big idea, and he's got a lot of scripture to support what he's been teaching about Jewish and Gentile salvation by faith and not by works of the law, which was, of course, the main thrust 
of his argument when he was talking about justification in Romans 3, 4, and 5. All right, before we get to the first of his evidences, I also wanted to point out to you this emphasis on Jew and Greek. This is something that, again, goes back to the very opening chapter of the letter, where in Romans 1.16, we looked at Romans 1.17 earlier, and Romans 1.16 and 17 together form the thesis for the book. And here in Romans 1.16, when he's talking about the gospel, he says, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So the Jew and the Greek, he put that right there in the thesis statement. He could have left that out. He could have just said the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, and that stands on its own. You don't need any further clarification. But he wanted to be extra clear on this point, so he wrote to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And this element of Jew and Greek has been running throughout the letter, and it's a, a, a huge part of Romans 9 through 11. I wanted you to see that. Now, while Romans 1.16 is in front of you, notice that the gospel is the power of God. We'll be talking about faith a lot. Faith is not the power of God for salvation. Faith is the power cord. And the power of God in the gospel runs through the cord of faith to us. So it's important to, to keep that clear. The power of God is the gospel. The power cord is faith. So now I've left some room here in our outline in order to, to fill in the verses that we're going to be looking at that Paul gives as evidence for what he's been teaching in Romans chapter 9. Particularly the conclusion that he came to in verse 24 that God has called people from the Jews and also from the Gentiles. So his first evidence here is Hosea. Let's go back to Hosea in your Bibles, please. We'll start in chapter 1. Let's start in Hosea chapter 1. That makes sense, doesn't it? Start in chapter 1. The prophets of the Old Testament are probably the least familiar part of the scriptures for most Christians, and I would like to do my part in helping to remedy that lack of knowledge of the Old Testament prophets. That's why we turn back to them. That's why I preached a, a long series through the prophet Isaiah, who is the most foundational important of the prophets, like Romans is the most important of the New Testament letters. Isaiah is first among the prophets for a reason. Hosea is kind of unique among the prophets and that Hosea's life and marriage are a representation, a living metaphor for the relationship of God to his people Israel. So we see there right at the beginning of Hosea, chapter 1, that God's word, the word of the Lord, came to Hosea. And I like how the Old Testament says that. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. Because if the word of the Lord is coming to someone, that kind of gives you the idea that, that it's alive, that it's active. Now, the word of God is living and active. It can, it can go places. So it also gives you the idea that you could even stretch it to say there's, there's some idea of the personality of the word of God here. The word of the Lord came to someone just like a person travels from one place to another place. And of course we know from the New Testament that the word of the Lord is a person, the Lord Jesus Christ. In the beginning was the word. The word was with God, the word was God, and as the word is with God, he goes to his prophets and he speaks to them God's word. He reveals the mind of God to Hosea. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. And what did the word of the Lord say? When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom, and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. It's immorality. It's unfaithfulness to your spouse. 
So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. How he knew that, that Gomer was going to be this wife of whoredom, maybe it was her reputation, maybe God told, we don't know exactly, but this was God's plan. So he takes her as his wife, and she conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while, I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. You can read about Jehu and how he needs to be punished for the blood of Jezreel back in the books of Chronicles and Kings. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day, I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, Call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. Now when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name not my people. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, You are not my people. It shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. So Paul takes Hosea 1.10, In the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, there it shall be said to them, You are the children of the living God. So Israel's unfaithfulness is highlighted here in Hosea and in all the prophets. This is a common theme among the prophets, where Israel's idolatry is likened unto a wife's unfaithfulness to her husband. And this picture is very fitting because God is jealous for the worship that is due to him like a husband is jealous for his wife's love. It's something that belongs to him. It doesn't belong to someone else. You could turn the picture around in our day and say a wife is rightly jealous for her husband's love. It belongs to her. It does not belong to some other woman. We give what is due to the person that it is due to. God is the one to whom we owe worship and honor, glory, respect. And so when we give that to an idol, that's like this whoredom, this spiritual immorality that is pictured throughout the prophets, but really poignantly here in Hosea chapter 1, right? What a lesson to the people. Hosea's walking around in Israel, like, here, let me introduce you to my kids. Here's no mercy. Oh, that's an interesting name. Where'd you come up with that one? Well, it's because God's not going to show any mercy to this country anymore, and he's going to destroy us. Oh, you're pretty serious about this. Well, how about, how about this one? What's that one's name? You're not my people. Oh, well, that's pretty strong, don't you think? I mean, this is a living sermon that lasts the, the whole life long. Very powerful. But notice the mercy that comes afterwards. That yes, God is going to judge his people. God is going to show no mercy. But that is only for a moment. And then afterward, God is going to show them tremendous mercy. The name of not my people is going to be changed to children of the living God. That is awesome. So in this quote from Hosea 1.10, Paul combines it with Hosea 2.23. 
I don't know if you noticed that. If you've got your finger in both places, you can flip back to Romans for a moment and, and look there. Paul says there in verse 25, the quotation, those who are not my people, I will call my people. That's actually from chapter 2. So Paul takes a verse from chapter 2 and puts it first, and then he follows it with the verse from chapter 1, verse 10. Interesting how he combines the two together there. So let's look at the verse in chapter 2, Hosea chapter 2, verse 23. I won't read the whole chapter like I did with chapter 1, because now I think you've got the idea. So let's just look at verse 23. Here, in the previous verse, God has been talking about the mercy that he's going to show to them. Verse 20 talks about God's promise to betroth Israel to himself in faithfulness. And notice what the prophet says, God's purpose, or the goal of this, what is the outcome? You shall know the Lord. You shall know the Lord. Same point we made last week, same point that was made in Sunday school. God goes to great pains to make himself known. Why does God do what he does? He does what he does to make himself known. It's great for God. It's great for us. It's great for everybody. This is God's purpose, to make himself known. And you know what? This is our purpose too. Remember that. Say, well, what's your purpose? Well, to know him and to make him known. That's my purpose. That's why I exist, to know him and make him known. I make him known in, in everything I do, my job, your job, everything that you have, your, your personality, your life, the morality that you live by, the words that come out of your mouth, your beliefs, your, your hopes and your dreams. It's, it's all to make God known and to know him. So we see there God's promises of blessing for Israel and you see in verse 22 and 23, this blessing, and he's bringing in Jezreel again in verse 22. I will sow her for myself in the land, and I will have mercy on no mercy, and I will say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. So you can see why Paul put these verses together, because they are so closely tied in theme and context. Now, the question that arises from Paul's quotation from Hosea is, Paul, what exactly are you trying to prove from this quotation from Hosea? Because if you go back and look at the promises of God written down by Hosea, this is a promise to Israel. And you're kind of, you know, stretching it perhaps. Are you trying to say, Paul, that this is an actual prophecy of Gentile salvation? Because what did he say right before this? That God is called from the Jews, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. So Paul, if you're quoting from Hosea to try to prove that God is going to save the Gentiles, well, that's not really the direct point of Hosea. Hosea's point was God is going to save the Jews, right? And Paul would say, well, yes, of course, I understand that. If he was here and defending himself, so let me do it in his stead. He would say, yes, I understand that Hosea is about the Jews, but, but look at the Jews, they were not God's people. And now God is making them his people. They weren't his people before. When God originally called them, he called them to become his people. They entered into a covenant with him. That's how they became his people. But then they were not his people by breaking the covenant, like a marriage covenant, what Hosea is all about, right? The breaking of the marriage covenant. They became not my people. And then God's going to make them his people again. So what this demonstrates is that it's not just about Jews, it's not about Gentiles, 
It's about God saving people who are not his people. That applies to Jews. It applies to Gentiles. And that's really the whole point of Romans chapter 9. Is the question is, why aren't the Jews saved? Well, because they're not his people. But God is making some of the Jews his people by saving them through faith in Christ. But not only that, there's other people who were not his people, the Gentiles, and God is making them his people as well by the same process, by faith in Jesus Christ. So Paul is not abusing the text. He's just drawing out the principle. An application of the Old Testament scripture is not an abuse of the Old Testament text. Paul is applying Hosea and his message in his time to what God is doing in the present time to show that it is consistent with who God is, which is really what the Bible is all about. The Bible is a book that reveals to us what God has done in the past so we can know what God is doing now. That's why God wrote it down. How do we know who God is? What do we know what his plan is? How do we know how he's going to act? Well, this is how I've acted in the past. You've seen me. You've known me. If you've lived a long time with me, say, well, what is Timothy like? What does he do? Well, what did he do before? What has he done the last 40 years of his life? Well, that's Timothy. You can expect certain things from him. Same thing with God, except even more so, because God doesn't change. I'm growing and learning and changing, but God doesn't change, so all of his actions in the past are the, the key to what he's doing in the present and what he's going to do in the future. This is what Moses asked. He said, God, I want to know you. I want to know your ways. I want to know what you do and how you act. And God says, I'll be gracious. I'll let you know me. I'll reveal myself to you. You don't deserve for me to reveal myself to you, but I will reveal myself to you because I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And I will be merciful to whom I will be merciful. And God chooses to be merciful to people who were not his people. And you know what? That's all of us. And that's what the Jews really needed to figure out. The Jews who were angry at Paul for preaching this gospel, saying, you can't go to the Gentiles with the message of Christ. That's our Messiah. It's our God. The Gentiles, they're the ones who are the unclean. They're the dogs. They're the ones who are outside. They can't even come into the temple. We've got written on our temple walls that if you go past the court of the Gentiles into the inner court where the Jews are allowed to enter, then you have no one to blame but yourself for your death. Those Gentiles, they don't belong here. But we Jews, we're the people of God. And so Paul's point, Jesus' point, Peter's point, all the apostles were coming along and saying, you guys... You think you're the people of God, but you're not. You're a synagogue of Satan. You are the ones who are of your father, the devil. Yeah, you're descendants of Israel, but you don't have the faith of Abraham. You don't do the deeds of Abraham. You are killing the prophets just like your fathers did in all the generations previously. You are not God's people. But good news, you can become God's people. And if you humble yourself and recognize that you're no better than these dirty Gentiles and that you need to be baptized for the remission of your sins like the dirty Gentiles need to be washed of their sins. I'm not preaching baptismal regeneration, by the way. But that was, that was, how, they, that was how they preached with those terminologies. And they meant what I mean by it. And so that would then bring Jew and Gentile together, which I think is really... Paul's major goal, or at least one of his major goals, in writing this letter to the church at Rome. I think he knew that there was a Jewish element in the church and a Gentile element in the church, and they weren't getting along very well. They were looking at one another with suspicious eyes. And I don't really know about that group over there. And so Paul's trying to bring them together by demonstrating that Jew and Gentile are saved the same way, by faith in God. And Hosea, 
does demonstrate that. That's a right application of Hosea 1 and 2. All right, so let's move on to the second one. We see this there. Paul not only quotes from Hosea, but then he moves to Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 10, a very powerful verse. We should read it in its context. So, so go back from Romans once again, and I'll just remind you as you're turning that the quotation is, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So this is from Isaiah chapter 10, verse 23. When the New Testament writers quote from the Old Testament, they will often combine verses together, not always even from the same book. They might take a verse from one book and a verse from another book and slam them together, and that's your quotation. Sometimes they won't even tell you that they're doing it. They'll say, well, Zechariah says this, and they're taking part from Zechariah and part from Jeremiah, and they put them together. And it's interesting how they view the Scripture as a whole, that it all goes together, and that it links, that one verse links to another verse, usually through key words. And we're going to see this here in our text today. The key word is stone. We had in our scripture reading, we're building, built up as living stones. Jesus Christ is the cornerstone. He's the rejected stone. And so what the apostles did, rightly, this is not just like some Hebrew thing that is foreign and weird. No, what they did rightly in handling the scriptures was they would identify verses that go together because of key words, key thoughts that tied those verses together. And so Paul is connecting what Hosea wrote with what Isaiah is writing here and he even takes part of what we read in Hosea and he, he inserts it here into Isaiah chapter 10. So let's read it in its own context here. Pick it up in Isaiah chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant, oh, there's a key word for us, the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. So instead of depending upon him who struck them, which would be Assyria in this context, they would look for foreign alliances and say, okay, the Assyrians are mighty, we make an alliance with the Assyrians and then they'll protect us from these other enemies and our kingdom will be secure. And God says, I don't like it when you go and look for protection from other nations. I'm your husband. I'm your protector. Look to me for protection, not the Assyrians. You harlot people. That's God's attitude towards their foreign alliances, okay? So God says there's coming a day where that's not going to happen. They're not going to lean on Assyria or any other nation, but they will lean on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Remember what Hosea said? He said, I'm going to deliver the people, but I'm not going to do it through horses. I'm not going to do it through armies. I'm not going to do it through spears. It's not going to be their military might that delivers them. Look at the nation of Israel today. They've got some impressive military. God's not going to deliver them through their military. He's going to do it with the power of his word. The power of his word is going to save the nation of Israel in the last days. So, they're going to depend upon the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, in truth. Verse 21, again, has the word remnant. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will return. Destruction is decreed, overflowing with righteousness. For the Lord God of hosts will make a full end as decreed in the midst of all the earth. So there's our verses there. Isaiah 10 verses 22 and 23 is what is quoted there by Paul in Romans. And now how do these verses in their context, and if you want to get a fuller detail of the meaning of these verses in their context, 
you know, go to our church website and listen to Isaiah chapter 10 and the sermon that I preached on this a number of years ago. Awesome study in Isaiah. And anyone who teaches verse by verse through the book of Isaiah, it's an awesome study because it's an awesome book. Now, Isaiah 10 verses 22 and 23, it ties in with Romans chapter 9 because notice what God said here, the remnant concept, that even though Israel could be innumerable, as God's promise that Abraham's descendants would be like the sand on the seashore, even if they have so many Israelites in the world, it's only a small percentage, it's only a remnant who are actually going to be saved by God. And so people were asking Paul, Paul, you got this gospel, the Jewish people aren't believing it, what's up? And Paul says, well, did you ever read the Old Testament? The Old Testament predicted over and over again that Israel was going to be a lot of people, but it was only going to be a small number that were going to be saved. And so if you look around in the world today and you see there's a lot of Israelites, but there's just only a small number of them that are believers in Jesus, well, that's the way it's always been. That's the way God has predicted it's going to be. And it will be that way up until the very end. All right, so God is using his previous words to confirm his current word, and God ties it together through the writings of the apostles, so that there can be no doubt that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a message from the same God who was speaking in Isaiah and Hosea and all of the prophets. Now, one further question I would like to ask. Why does Paul include Isaiah 10.23 in the quotation? Because Isaiah 10.23, it's there, of course, right after 10.22, So you could say that's why, but if you go back to Romans chapter 9 and you look at the quotation in its context, Paul's point is kind of made already just by verse 27. If you look at the quotation, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved. So when I said, why does Paul quote this passage? That was all we really needed, right? That was all I used to explain that Romans 9 has been teaching this and this is what his basis is in the Old Testament. So why then does he include the rest of it? Why does he have verse 28 there? The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. Well, I think he includes it for the same reason that Isaiah included it. While it's not necessarily directly to the point of the argument of why are Jews not saved, it does tie in to his explanation that we've been looking at in Romans chapter 9 that it's because of God's decree. It's because of God's foreordination that everything is happening according to the predetermined plan of God. The Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. So God is at work. His words never fail. His plan is going exactly as it was planned. And when it happens... It happens without delay. People are always looking at the prophecy in Scripture and saying, oh, you know, you've been saying this stuff is going to happen forever. And that's what the people of Israel did with the Old Testament prophets. You know, they'd look at Jeremiah and say, you know, Jeremiah, we've had a lot of prophets for hundreds of years saying that God is going to destroy the nation and, you know, he's really mad at us for our idolatry and look, we're still here. Things are fine. Stop freaking out. And they were saying the same thing then. But when the appointed time comes, When God fulfills his word, it comes quickly, without delay. And people aren't ready, and people don't escape. He waits. He waits. He's very patient. 
But once the time for judgment comes, that's it. No second chances. That's what Paul is getting at there by including that verse. He didn't have to for the sake of his argument, but God wanted it there for our reminder. Now, let's continue. Let's wrap this up with the third quotation here, and we'll save the rest for next week. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9, is what is quoted there in the following verse. He says, And, as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts had not left us offspring, key word, very important theological word, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. I won't go back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 9 to look at this in its context, as we did with the others. I encourage you to do that. But this quotation ties in the idea of the seed with the remnant. If God had not left us offspring, a small subset within the people of Israel. And so Paul has given text after text from Hosea and Isaiah to demonstrate that it has never been God's plan for all of the people of Israel to be saved at all times. It's never been demonstrated in history. It's never been a part of his plan for prophecy, but that God has repeatedly told us that it's a small number of Jewish people who are going to be saved. So this is exactly in accord with the situation that Paul is writing to in the first century, and it still holds true today. The quotation also ends with a reference to Sodom and Gomorrah, and so I just wanted to remind you from Genesis chapter 19, verses 24 and 25, this would be very offensive to a Jewish person. The people of God, the chosen nation, the covenant people who have the law and the prophets and the temple and the worship, the ones who had the circumcision, children of Abraham, and to be compared to Sodom and Gomorrah is very offensive. The Lord rained on Sodom and Gomorrah sulfur and fire from the Lord out of heaven. And he overthrew those cities and all the valley and all the inhabitants of the cities and what grew on the ground. And Isaiah preached this message in his day. And he was not well received. History records that he was put inside of a wooden log that was hollow and then they sawed the log in two. Jeremiah preached this message in his day. He was not very popular. They burned his book. They threw him in a well. They tried over and over again to get him to shut up. And he said, I can't stop speaking the word of God. It becomes like a fire inside of me and I have to let it out. And Jesus came and preached. Woe to the cities that saw his miracles. And he wept over Jerusalem. And he told them that they were a synagogue of Satan and sons of the devil and they did not like it. And they crucified him. So Stephen got up and preached and said, Which one of the prophets have you not persecuted? And now you have become the murderers of God's Christ. And they stoned him to death. And Paul saw the risen Christ. And he went to his people and he said, It's true. Jesus is the Messiah. The scriptures show it. Let me preach this Christ to you. And they said, go far away. You don't deserve to live. The gospel is offensive. 
That's where we're going in verses 30 to 33. So if you don't want to offend people, you might want to turn back from following Christ. Make your choice. You follow Christ and you say what he said with the love in your heart that he had in his heart. And you might get treated similarly. Tell America that its sins have reached up to heaven. That it is ripe for judgment. That God could rain down fire and brimstone righteously upon this nation and destroy man, woman, and child. And see how they'll treat you. Courage, brethren. Courage. Let's make God proud. Let's stand in the line of the prophets, the apostles. I hadn't planned this exhortation, but God brought it out. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the example of men like Paul, who lost his head preaching an offensive gospel. We thank you for men like Peter, who had another chance to stand with Christ and proclaim the truth and to be crucified We thank you for all the heroes of the faith, men of whom the world was not worthy, men who were sawn in two, stoned, who were tortured with utmost cruelty. We thank you that you have sent messenger after messenger, prophet after prophet. And now, Lord God, we say, here are we. Send us. Send us through the fire. Send us through the sword. And bring us safely to your heavenly kingdom, even as you did for each one of your faithful servants. Lord, may we not only proclaim the gospel, but may we defend it. Defend it with the wisdom and the knowledge that comes to us from the Holy Spirit. A wisdom that none of our opponents will be able to withstand. For you are with us. We give you thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.